Yeah, I have a beautiful Yeti microphone that my husband got me for Christmas a couple of years ago that I almost never get to use because if I'm using my computer, it does not also want to be running Skype if I want to be doing anything else. That's, That's so strange. Sad. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, uh, Pete Romberg, and today I am uh, a amateur candle maker. I made some candles this weekend. It was very relaxing and zen-like. Uh, joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan, an individual who experienced a night terror for the first time in this past week, did not care for it. D minus would not experience again. <laughs> One star on Yelp. It was awful. Jeez, like different than a nightmare, though. Well, it was, I think, I had a nightmare, and then I was awake, and my brain was convinced that I could not move. So I think the nightmare and the sleep paralysis were related. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know what was happening in my brain that inspired this because it, it's never happened to me before. Yeah. Um, if anybody is curious, I, it was a nightmare um, inspired by the trailer for the movie The Turning, which does not actually look like that scary of a movie to me, but maybe it's ticking something off in my brain that uh, I'm not even registering. Hmm. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> uh, joining us this week is friend of the show and return guest Joel Kenyon. Joel, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. And uh, just to touch on your night terror thing, I did not experience those until ooh, a year and a half ago, I think was the first time I had one. And then I had three within maybe a month. Oh, Lord. No. And, uh, yeah, I, I would say not a fan, F minus. And um, from what I understand, your body shuts down when you sleep so that you don't roll over and fall out of bed. So all your your muscles and things kind of shut off. And you wake up enough that you're still in that state where your body's half dreaming and unable to move, but you're conscious. And so whatever it is that you are thinking about in your head then kind of becomes a reality. You can't move because your body's not actually awake yet. And it translates to this horrifying experience, which if you've ever want to dig into it deeper, there's a great documentary called The Nightmare that came out in 2015 about it. Hmm. It's pretty terrible. To, yeah, I may have to check that out because I'm, I'm like a little obsessed right now with why this like why i experience it because I, I know it's like a thing that happens to people but i've had nightmare but nightmares before and this i have not reacted this way so i'm a little bit like why now <laughs> right um, i'm gonna try really hard also, to continue my track record of not having had one uh so <laughs> now i'm also afraid that it's gonna happen again <laughs> and i don't want that sorry about that yeah. I, I no admit. no as long I'm, as I'm this legitimately, doesn't... legitimately interested to watch this documentary because I would like to know more about them. Well, and it's 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 put into a format where it's almost like 
because uh, they have there's reenactments of the night terrors of the different people that they're interviewing. Hmm. So it feels like it's halfway movie, halfway documentary. And I'm not a fan of the documentary filmmakers as a whole. Their other body of work is not thrilling, but it's 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 an interesting watch, especially if you've experienced one. Yeah, and I'm just trying as a whole to experience more nonfiction material this year in both film and book form. So always looking for uh, recommendations on that front. There you go. Um, but enough about my weird brain. <laughs> right. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about all of our weird brains uh, when we are doing what's stuck in our head. That's a forced transition, but I'm going to go with it. Uh, this episode, we are talking about translation and sort of remakes of various movies across cultures. But before we do that, we're going to be looking at what is stuck in our heads. This is whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about that, uh, you know, that we've consumed in the past week or so. Um, Martha, why don't you start us off? Um, I admit I had been, th I was having trouble kind of figuring out, uh, what I wanted to talk about this week because a lot of the media I have been consuming recently is stuff that I've already talked about on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then I saw Jojo Rabbit with my mother this afternoon, uh, which is legitimately what is stuck in my head now. Um, I'm trying to work my way through the Oscar nominees before the ceremony, uh, and so a bunch of them are playing at my local movie theater, and we went to see Jojo Rabbit, which was, I, I'm gonna be thinking about this one for a while, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I have a lot of feelings about it. I think it was a very, I think it was good. I think it was good. <laughs> um, I'm struggling a little bit with the portrayal of Hitler as a character that we as an audience are, that is a, a figure of mockery mm -hmm. for the audience. Because I, I think that there is some danger in our modern audience um, associating Nazis with ridicule. Um, I, I think that there are a lot of ways in which we need to be taking white nationalists and neo-Nazis very, very seriously right now. Um, but also, as my mother commented on when we were kind of debriefing after the movie, um, it does feel very appropriate to the fact that the whole movie is taking place through the eyes of a 10-year-old. Yeah. So in that way, it feels very appropriate. Um, and there are moments in the movie that are very poignant um, I'm just, yeah, it, this one's going to be stuck in my head for a while, I think. Yeah, I, I had the same thought leaving, uh, and, and even going in, like, having that tension of Hitler as a, a figure of mockery versus someone that needs to be taken seriously, but because he's the, you know, it's like, he's a 10-year-old boy's imaginary friend, so of course it's, there's something that's going to be inherently silly about that idea, um... I thought it was a very empathetic movie, which I really appreciated. Um, like it, it, well, and I, it was a little bit like simplistic in the, in the fact that it's like it, its aim was like you should care about people, and it's like yes, you should. Uh, but also, that is a useful message. Um, and I do think it's useful to note that the other characters in the movie who are Nazis are generally not played as jokes mm -hmm. like they occasionally do 
things that you're supposed to laugh at, but they they are not um, reduced to uh, like a mockery of the character. So yeah, the, it, 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 there's a little bit of like banality of evil going on with like Stephen Merchant's character, especially, um, which I think I appreciated. It has also been a very long time since I enjoyed watching Sam Rockwell in a movie mm. who is an actor that I like, um, but just he has not been making character choices that I've enjoyed mm -hmm. generally. So that was that was nice. Being able to to enjoy him in a movie again was nice. Yeah, he kind of fell off the radar a bit there for a while, unfortunately, because I agree. I, he's one of those guys that I, I like to watch. I won't necessarily specifically see a movie just because he's in it, mm -hmm. but he generally is a pretty bankable kind of person that you're going to get a good performance for sure. Yeah. And I've been curious about this movie, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's something to it, you know, cause I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I've heard people say it's good, but <laughs> nothing more than that. Well, and did you see leave no trace? Uh, I no. That was a, a smaller movie that came out last year about a girl and her dad who live off the grid. Oh, yeah. I've heard um, of it. It was, yeah, it was incredible. And the daughter in that movie is in Jojo Rabbit and is, I think, one of the best parts of the movie. Yes, she I, was I knew, incredible. Yeah, I knew very little about what it was actually going to be about going in. Um, and kind of the discovery of the story was also very good. I recommend it, even though I'm not... I'm not quite sure how I feel about it yet. I do think it's a movie that is worth seeing and worth um, like being able to form your own opinion about. And it's it's a weird curveball movie, and I'm I'm fully on board with supporting those financially so that more of them get made. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, cool. Well, Joel, what is uh, stuck in your head? Well, this is going to seem probably a little. Uh, uh... I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Uh, mainstream, but I finally got around to seeing Joker a week or so ago, and I had heard so many good things about it that that's always a bit of a danger when you go into a film where you're kind of already leaning a certain way based on what other people are saying, where, you know, if they say it's amazing and you're like, yeah, I'm probably not going to like it, or vice versa. I came out of it um, first a little perplexed, and then sitting with my fiance talking about it afterwards for the next couple of days, I was like, you know, it really deserved all I got. And I know a lot of people are kind of saying, you know, is it really, should it have been called Joker? Should it have just been a character study on this, on Arthur Fleck? But um, I thought it was a, it was an interesting take on kind of deconstructing how outside influences and how you're raised and your lifestyle can kind of, end up taking you down a dark path if you don't have proper support, you know, mm. like a support system. Hmm. Uh, I know neither Martha nor I have seen this movie yet. Uh, I'm waiting for it to come on HBO because I kind of just don't want to pay for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to get drunk and hate watch it, I think. Because, uh, like, it's a movie that I'm not excited for uh, to watch. Um, but your, your analysis of it as being sort of that, like, the character study of someone like who is abandoned by society is definitely more interesting than like, it, it makes it sound more interesting um, than I have been thinking of it. Well, I, I gotta, Oh, go ahead. I gotta ask Joel, would you say that you liked it? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Okay. I, I, 
as people have asked me about it who hadn't seen it, I'm like, well, it's kind of like if you took Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy and you made the main character a well-known villain. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like Taxi Driver, but with elements of, of the King of Comedy, both being De Niro films. Um, and it's it's fairly dark. I mean, there's not a lot in it to be happy with, you know? But it, Joaquin does an amazing job of playing a guy who just is slowly falling apart at the seams. Yeah, one of my one of the reasons I've been resistant to watching it is because... I, I have just heard that even even people from whom have told me that they thought it was a good movie, um, it sounds like the the watching experience of it is just sort of unpleasant and unhappy. Um, and lately, that has not been a feeling I have really wanted to kind of immerse myself in. <laughs> Understandable. Well, and that um, is very similar to Taxi Driver, which is like in a very good film that is not pleasant to watch. Well, and is not a movie I've seen. Like right. I, I have not actually seen either um, King of Comedy or Taxi Driver. Um, I just know that one of the uh, baristas at one of my local coffee joints whom I don't like uh, described Joker as the best superhero movie since Batman Begins. And upon hearing that, I uh, liked him even oh. less and also had less interest <laughs> in seeing Joker. <laughs> <laughs> Also, it's not a superhero movie. Like, right. I even I I just I, I like, don't think that it's being pedantic to to want to make that distinction. Like, right, right. I I really don't think that it is fair to call it like the, the Joker is a not a superhero. Like, yeah, that doesn't feel like semantics. Yeah, that feels just like I'm gonna call anything that's comic book related a superhero movie, and I, I am pedantic enough that that bothers me. <laughs> well, and you definitely can't do that because there's some movies that are out there that fall into that genre that are definitely not like superhero uh, movies. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know what's interesting is is I watched I, you know I I bought it. Um, just as a, a blind buy, just because it, it looked like something that I was going to enjoy, because I like mm-hmm. kind of that sort of storytelling, um, kind of the... Sure. Uh, and Todd Phillips, a director who most people know from, you know, The Hangover and Old School, he does, you know, comedies, he talked about how the initial idea was based around this kind of story, and then they're like, well, you know... It's kind of like Joker it wasn't necessarily an afterthought, but you know they could have done it either way, and it still would have been the same storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just worked better um, doing that, and it, it was kind of interesting. But yeah, no, I know it's definitely not something you want to watch if you're want to feel good at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, but Pete, cool. What yeah. is stuck in your head? Uh, well, what is stuck in my head is a uh, a fantasy novel called Warbreaker by Brandon Sanderson, um, friend of the show, and my cousin Caitlin Flynn uh, gave me this over the Christmas season um, as part of a book hostage exchange that we did, uh, and I kind of demolished it in a week or so. Um, I generally like I like fantasy in general, but I tend to not read a lot of fantasy. Um, and definitely not a lot of fantasy like this, which is very much like high fantasy. Um, 
I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got another one of his books that I'll probably be reading. Uh, it's my first time reading anything of his other than he wrapped up the Wheel of Time series after the original author died. So I read, you know, those three books that he wrote, but that was, you know, playing in someone else's sandbox. So this was the first time I was reading anything by him uh, in his own world. Um, really innovative magic system, really innovative world building, uh, definitely a propulsive plot. And Martha, as you're trying to read more... Uh, nonfiction. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm trying to read more fantasy, but I can easily see myself in 2020 uh, sort of naturally falling into reading more sort of like high fantasy works that, um, you know, I kind of haven't touched for a long time. I have some recommendations for you if you are ever in a place where you need recommendations. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I have not read any Sanderson myself. He has a series um that my teens are wild for. The first one is called Steelheart. That sounds like it's kind of a combination um, dystopian and fantasy world. Um, Maybe some steampunk vibes? Little bit. I'm just um, guessing that based on the title. <laughs> yeah, that one's been popular enough that I haven't really had to pitch it, so I haven't read the first. I try to read the first one in series just so I can, if I even if I don't read the rest of them, I know enough to um, sell them to kids. But that one doesn't need my help. So I... <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll say this for him: he's a crazy prolific author. Um, so, like you know, more power to him on that front. What is a hostage book exchange? Uh, I gave her I really, a... <laughs> I really need to know, yes. <laughs> uh, it was just like, I gave her uh, Neil Stevenson's most recent book, and she gave me two uh, Sanderson books. Um, so now she has, you know, one of mine, and I've got two of hers, and eventually we'll trade them back. Uh... So is it is it also a little bit, I'm going to make you read this thing that I love? Um, on her end, yes. She she loves Stevenson to begin with, so she, like, suggest she wanted to borrow it from me in the first place. Uh, and then simultaneously was like, oh, here's some Sanderson, you should read them, uh, I'll trade them for the Stevenson book you have, so. So I guess, it, okay. it, yeah, not really hostage, more just exchanging, but now we have the books as hostages, so. Exchange with <laughs> intent to return? Right, exactly. Nice. <laughs> See, if I'm giving away a book, I don't want it back. Mm, mm-hmm. Get this out of my house. <laughs> well, cool. Um, well, that's what was stuck in our head. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to go and talk about our homeworks and about um, sort of translation and adaptation across culture. Welcome back. Uh, today we are going to be talking about translation. So we've assigned um, sort of two pairs of movies as homework. Uh, Let the Right One In or and Let Me In, which is a pair of uh, Swedish and then American horror movies. Um, Shall We Dance, which is a 1996 Japanese film and a 2004 American film. Uh, and then a solitary film that doesn't have a remake uh, yet called Shadow, which is a 2019 or 2018 uh, Chinese wuxia film. 
Um, we're sort of going to be looking at, uh, you know, how how these movies change in translation, whether the translations work or not when they're going from a specific cultural context to a different cultural context, uh, and just sort of looking at also the the idea of those like strong cultural connotations, uh, cultural approaches to storytelling, to pacing, to just like the underlying philosophy, character dynamics, things like that. Um, so we're going to start off with uh, Joel. Take us through Let the Right One In slash Let Me In. And i just like to say I have a feeling Shadow will not be remade into an American film. Yeah, just I, I, would, that I, I would uh, definitely take that bet. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. They might try and squeeze like, a couple extra dollars out of it. Um, so Let the Right One In is a uh, Swedish film from 2008 directed by Thomas Alfredson who um, also is known for uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is probably the one most people will recognize. The rest are all Swedish words that I don't know. Um, He also did The Snowman uh, a couple years ago, which was with, I believe, uh, Michael Fassbender. Yes, Mr. Policeman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which tells the story of Oscar, who is kind of an awkward, um, heavily bullied, blonde-haired little boy who, um, during the course of this short period of time, a man and a young girl or young person move into the same apartment complex as him. Um, They kind of befriend each other, and he comes to find out that she is a vampire of sorts. Um, A 200-year-old castrated young boy who then, uh, through the course of events, they become friends. She murders some people, and they live happily ever after. If if that if that summarizes that <laughs> in the worst way possible, because there's so much more to it than that. Um, and then, did you want me to talk about the other one as well? Yeah, why not? Uh, let me in, which is the American counterpart. Which uh, let the right one in, let the right one in came out in 2008. Let me in came out in 2010. Not the closest remake to original race you know time frame that i've ever seen um this one was directed by matt reeves who um most people will know for cloverfield but he also did uh dawn and war of planet of the apes and now he's currently filming the the batman the new robert pattinson take on the batman storyline um and this one the plot is essentially identical uh, there's really not a lot of variation as far as the basic plot beats and the storyline. Uh, there's mostly just little twer- twerks, not twerks, tweaks here and there um, between kind of these Swedish storytelling versus the American storytelling. Yeah, this was like an interesting time where I feel like Hollywood was mining a lot of Swedish films. Um, you know, th- this one came out in 2010. Uh, and then at, at around the same time, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo both came out in Sweden and then was getting remade in the U.S. by David Fincher. So it was sort of like a weird, you know, four-year period where Hollywood was really hot for Swedish movies. Which I don't have a problem with because yeah. I, I enjoy a lot of Swedish films. So, but, uh, you know, again, there's that kind of desire by Hollywood to take what isn't broken and, uh, you know, I'm not against remakes, but if you're going to do it, either bring something new to it or do it in such a way that, you know, you're not 
stepping on the toes of the things that made the original one great. Yeah, I I like both of these versions, but I do feel like it's a bit of a question of what exactly is the American version doing? Because uh, the Swedish one was, like, fine. Um, other than, you know, just a sort of a money, a cash cow uh, for the, the studios. It didn't seem like it was bringing anything entirely new to to the original i disagree Ooh, great <laughs> i actually i really like both of these movies and i think that they're both doing different stuff okay um i i described them to pete before we started recording as two movies that are kind of in conversation with each other um like the the american version is easier i think it's a more straightforward kind of up and down horror movie Mm -hmm. um and the the swedish version is a little bit slower like i i almost hesitate to call it even a horror film because it's not so much like it's it's more about um it's a moody drama that happens to have a vampire in it yeah, like it's less about the fact that Eli is a vampire and more about the relationship that develops between these two children who have undergone different forms of trauma in their lives, mm-hmm. which is a thread that gets carried through the American version, but then the American version is also just, hey, and also Abby eats people, by right. the way. <laughs> um, I, for me, Let the Right One In is... is I, I've never been a fan of the vampire genre. I, as you guys know, probably, I'm a huge horror fan. And so I've seen a lot of different things. But this is by far my favorite of the vampire genre. This is my all-time favorite vampire film. Hmm. Um, and I think it's because it does it in such a way that it's very different from... You know, you I guess you could kind of equate it with uh, Kirsten Dunn's character in... Um, interview with a vampire where you know you've kind of got this child that gets stuck in a a, a child's body but then continues to mentally grow older um and i think what where this one succeeds more than the other is that with eli's character i feel like um she's got more of a kind of a world weary kind of like she knows more than she's lets on to her her portrayal and i feel like um it's almost like you can tell that she's manipulating Oscar to kind of bend to what she needs, but then during the course of it, or I should say he needs, but during the course of it, kind of shifts and realizes that, you know, there is a relationship there. And then I just, it's just a very kind of even paced, slow burn that never really gets like, too, too uh, boisterous, too bold, too big. Mm-hmm. It always just kind of maintains that same pace, and it just—it's a nice. I don't know something about it. Just the mood it sets is beautiful. Yeah, one of the things I think we're going to be talking about a lot um, over the next however many minutes is <laughs> this question of necessity, like when when an american filmmaker sets out to remake a movie that already exists in a form like how how necessary is it um 
like do we need this to exist and for me um this kind of question of american horror aesthetics versus the swedish aesthetics do make the the remake well necessary is a stupid word right. to, to use because we don't need any of this um but it at least makes it worthwhile for me because um abby i think is a more straightforward like she's still sympathetic but she's a more straightforward and easy to understand monster than eli is mm -hmm. um, which just makes for a different movie experience and whether it's one that you enjoy or not um is a different question but i do at least think that we it can be said that the american version is bringing something new to the table just by virtue of american horror aesthetics being um, substantively different from Swedish. That's true. Um, which I felt I felt was a dynamic worth exploring. Mm -hmm. Again, your mileage may vary on that, and it doesn't make it um, a less valid experience. I just enjoyed seeing that dynamic kind of worked through. And, and almost like like back to back, where where you can sort of like it's the the light is being shed on it through the opposition with the original version. Um, yeah, it is. It is interested. I think in. It is interested in the differences between the original um, film language and the remake. Mm -hmm. I think another thing we're going to be talking a lot about this episode is pacing. Um, and I think you both were talking about how "Let the Right One In" is a slower film and a lot more, like quiet as well. Um, it's more ruminative, if that is how that word is pronounced. Um, and, yeah. And, 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 Martha, I think that goes to what you're saying about how, like, the, the trappings of American horror movies are louder and bolder. Um, so it doesn't... I do also... I want to pause us just real quick to put in a disclaimer here. Obviously, we're going to be talking in generalities here. Yes. There are clearly American horror movies that are subtle and... Um, not as in your face uh, and do not conform to these but for for the realistic discussion purposes we are going to have to be speaking kind of generally here sure yes, yes. <laughs> um now don't get me wrong I, I i like let me in i own both of them um i just like the story that 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 they've created of these two characters from from the original novel mm -hmm. um and i i think i i also kind of like um that there's it's not a romance per se because they're they're 12 years old but you know there's kind of that relationship building that um they both do spend a lot of time on which i think is different than a lot of horror films because a lot of horror films it's you know here's your people let's get to know them here's your killer let's have him murder people well, it's a slasher movie but you know you get the point here it's the the people that are being you know, used for cannon fodder are less people you care about and more just people to move the story forward because it's it's really just about the two of them. Well, and and the 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 cannon fodder as you put them, the red shirts are either kind of like faceless nobodies whom um, Abby or Ellie is feeding on, or they're like the bullies. So they're people like we're almost rooting for her. Um, you know, when when she saves uh, Owen slash. Oscar, um, which is definitely like that interesting dynamic that I think we only really see in vampire movies, 
um, of all like the various horror genres of rooting for the killer. Um, I do. Th- I do think it's interesting that the American version makes that harder because we open with. Um, don't we? Don't we open with a scene of Abby committing violence? It, the the let me in opens with um uh oh I just watched it today <laughs> where uh, Richard Jenkins caretakers yeah her yeah. caretaker gets uh they he's out the window and the detective uh, Elias Cotias I don't know how you say his name um finds him you know murdered out or well dead outside and that's kind of how it opens and then it back backtracks however many two months or something like that or two weeks okay so it opens with it opens with a murder but not one or it opens with a death but not one that is explicitly and immediately connected to abby right yeah i mean although she essentially is the one that does it i mean he commits half of it himself and she just finishes the job but yeah it's not like you know like uh, in the underpass where she you know, lures the guy over for the intent purpose of feasting. Yeah. Yeah. And he jumps out the window basically to avoid being questioned by the police about all her murders, right? Or about all the the murders. Initially, he, he, you know, pours the uh, sulfuric acid on his face to either A, try to kill himself, or B, try to make himself unrecognizable. But then once she shows up, he kind of... Uh, not necessarily gives a blessing to move on, but it's yeah. like, you know, this is my goodbye. Before I go, you know, go ahead and do what you're going to do. And she feeds on him one last time, you know, so he's still her caretaker right before he plummets out the window. Not not because he jumps, but because he's had the blood sucked out of him and he just falls. Right. And in one, he hits his head rather violently, and the other one, he just lands into the snowbank and still is pretty high up. Which is an interesting change. Uh, obviously, left to right one in, in Sweden, so we've got snowy, snowy like beautiful snowy landscapes. Uh, the American one is in New Mexico, uh, so it's kind of got that, like, the same sort of open, empty barrenness, but entirely different sort of feel. Still a lot of snow, though, which yeah. threw me off. Yeah. I didn't know they got snow in New Mexico. What do I know? <laughs> I think it's, like, up in the mountains. Oh. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's go to our next um, set of films. Uh, Martha, tell us about Shall We Dance? Okay, so I asked us to watch two different versions of a movie called Shall We Dance. Uh, the first one is a 1996 movie that, uh, or a 1996 Japanese movie directed by Masayuki Suo. And the 2004 American remake, directed by Peter Chelsom and starring Richard Gere and Jennifer Lopez and Susan Sarandon. Interestingly, um, Masayuki Suo, the director of the original, is a credited writer on the remake. Hmm. So I don't know exactly what the work portion there is, or even if he's just getting... Uh, credit because it's an adaptation of the original work. But anyway, um, these are two movies that follow almost an identical plot line. Uh, They are about a uh, 
businessman slash lawyer uh, who is discontented in his life uh, and on the train coming home one day sees a beautiful woman uh, in a dance classroom and is inspired to take up ballroom dancing um, keeps it a secret from everyone in his life including his wife um, and ends up ultimately finding some fulfillment through uh, dance and through his developing relationship with the dance instructor um this is a movie that I think works extremely well in the original format and not at all in the American. <laughs> yep. Because of fundamental cultural differences. Yes. I was very um, confused watching the American version of why he was keeping it a secret. Uh, but it makes a lot more sense in the Japanese version. Yes. Um, I watched the original Japanese version... Um, or I watched the Japanese version originally uh, in high school a number of years ago in my Japanese class. So I, I did get a bit of a boost in that my teacher got to explain to us like the full, like the cultural context that this movie is happening in. Although it does open with a little expository paragraph saying Japan is a culture where people don't show affection and dancing is something that is both embarrassing and also fascinating. Um, and then, yeah, you spend the entire American version wondering why Richard Gere cares if anyone knows if he dances or not. And, like, there's a throwaway explanation for it, but I don't buy it. And it comes so late in the film that by that point it's like, well, like, come on. Um, but, yeah, whereas, whereas I do believe there is room in my world for both versions of Let the Right One In and Let Me In, um, I, I picked Shall We Dance as an example of when... Um, America just gets it wrong because I, I don't feel I feel like remaking this movie fundamentally misses the point of what the tension is in the original mm -hmm. and you know I, I'm, I'm, I love Stanley Tucci I'm a fan for many many years but I legitimately disliked his character in this film and you know that's that's a minor nitpick but when Stanley Tucci can't make it something interesting that you know there's something wrong with it um <laughs> but go ahead well i was gonna say this movie also suffers from being made in 2004 so there's a lot of like gay panic jokes going on even though it, it is like sympathetic to its one uh gay character but even then it's like he's he's aggressively masculine to hide that fact and and yeah tucci is terrified of being outed as a dancer for again things that like kind of don't make sense in america well and after seeing bobby carnavale in in the station agent where he's amazing and then seeing his talent kind of wasted here again just all the more reiterated why i because i had no idea other than just a real basic plot breakdown what these were about and when i started the original shall we dance from the very get-go, I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And I ended up, by the end of it, just going, wow, that was that was pretty amazing. And I knew right away that once we got into the, the remake, there was going to be problems. Just from the cast alone, even though you've got some very talented people in it, I, I, I was just wondering how they were going to pull it off. And I, as you guys have already said, I think they kind of neglected what made the original one so just interesting to watch 
from a cultural standpoint, if even even without the dancing and, and the storyline and the script and the acting. Speaking of casting, completely randomly, uh, Richard Jenkins is in both of the American remakes that we watched. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wild. <laughs> it also left a very bad taste in my mouth that, so Jennifer Lopez plays the dance instructor in the American version, and they change her character's backstory in a way that I was like, oh, you got J-Lo, so you had to make her, like, her, her, she comes from a poor family, and her family owns a laundry, uh, like a dry cleaners, and it ends up feeling very kind of stereotypical white person's view of where a Latina would come from, mm -hmm. a Latina who dances. And because it is one of the few things that gets changed between the two movies, it was, I don't know, felt grosser to me than it might have if I didn't know that it was a um, an alteration from the original material. Um, I don't know. I just felt like this movie, the, the American version, like, goes deep where it doesn't have to and doesn't where it should have and yeah this one this one i don't think we needed i, th <laughs> I feel like did not need this remake and i think that was a little bit of the critical consensus too when the movie came out there was sort of you know it's it's very poorly received on rotten tomatoes 46 percent, and a lot of it was like doesn't make sense because the the entire cultural like context is missing um, yeah. Well, they try to, I think, tweak it in a way to, to make it work. You know, they try and flesh out more of his home life. They try and flesh out, you know, his wife's character a bit more. Um, you know, the detectives, which kind of become a bit of a, a farce. Um, and I, I think that's how they were trying to fix some of those issues. But it ended up just making it kind of even more of a mess. Yeah, And, you know, being on a person who watches remakes on the regular, I try to keep an open mind and try to be very, you know, receptive to even, you know, the littlest things that kind of can make them worthwhile. But I didn't, I, I had nothing about this that, that made me feel good about it, you know? Not even, like I said, the, the some of the main characters that I like in other things. I kind of forgot how much I did like Richard Gere. I thought that he worked pretty well in this because he's just very charismatic and charming inherently so it's like yeah i can i'll watch him fine but yeah that, although that then you it. start to realize you start to realize how boring and hollow the character is because i think it depends on depends very heavily on the fact that you're watching richard gear yes yes i mean also his name is john clark like with a name that bland there's it, it it's bland all the way through <laughs> Well, and you're talking about pacing. The the original, once again, kind of like uh, Let the Right One In, it's got a very slow, deliberate pace that kind of, you know, has peaks and valleys here and there. But for the most part, it kind of maintains a similar tone. And this one kind of, like a piece of music, kind of swells to this crescendo that then just kind of drops off a cliff. And you just kind of at the end of it going, what, what the hell? What just happened? You know? Yeah. I, whereas at the end of the other one, I was like, that was a ride I enjoyed. You know, that was a, a very nice piece of music that I would listen to again. And, you know, I, I 
I was glad you guys brought this to my <laughs> to my attention. To be honest, <laughs> I really enjoy that description of it. Actually, a, a piece of music that I enjoyed listening to. I like that because it's also it's almost a very soothing movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I had a follow up to that thought, but I, I find <laughs> it a very soothing a very soothing watching experience. Where the whole time I'm watching Richard Gere, I'm like, why do you care? Right, right. Just tell your wife you're dancing; she'll like it. Yeah, yeah, I legitimately cared about the characters in the Japanese version. Like, I, I, all the characters in the film had something that made me want to know more about them and want to follow their kind of journey from the beginning to the end and where they were going to end up. Whereas in the, the, the remake, I was like, okay, plug in stereotype A, here's stereotype B, here's this person that's a name, and let's see what happens. And, you know, you ended up with a big mess. Which mm-hmm. I, I hadn't thought about this. Like, you're entirely right that, like, almost everyone in this movie is a stereotype in the American version. I'm wondering, like if the Japanese version has the similar idea, but since we don't know Japanese stereotypes, um, they're just, they feel more interesting to us because we're not thinking like, oh, that's the stereotype of this person. That's the stereotype of that person. Um, which is sort of like an interesting, like, you know, reversal on on the idea of like translation and like you, you, you lose the stereotypes because you're just not aware of them, uh, so they they appear more interesting than they would maybe to, um, you know, the audience who uh, it was originally made for. So, are you saying that if a Japanese uh, moviegoer who wasn't familiar with American cinema very much, perhaps, or uh, American culture, watched the remake, they would enjoy it? More? No, I, no, I don't think that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I was going more big picture rather than this context. <laughs> um, well, any other thoughts on Shall We Dance before we move on to our final film? Tell us about cool. Tell us about Shadow, and please define, please define the word you used to describe this movie that I'm afraid of saying lest I. <laughs> uh, so I assigned the 2008 film Shadow, which is a wuxia film, which is. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Chinese kung fu movies. Um, it might be more specific than that. Uh, this is by um, Zhang Yimou. I hope I got that right. Who in the States is famous for having directed Hero and House of Flying Daggers. Um, this is a gorgeously shot movie, uh, all in grayscale, sort of the opposite of Hero. Um, it's, it's not. What? It's just the, it, it's not in grayscale. No, I, I, I mean like the, the palette is all grays and blacks and whites. Like it's oh, it's okay. shot in color, but many scenes you wouldn't even know. Um, uh, but it, it is set in a medieval era Chinese kingdom, uh, two warring kingdoms fighting each other. Uh, the commander of one of the kingdoms has uh, suffered a debilitating uh, wound. And so has sort of replaced himself with a shadow, a person who looks just like him, uh, and whom he is sort of controlling and and trying to you know execute his plans to defeat their enemies. Um, it's convoluted AF in terms of the plotting, uh, but eventually there's uh, an invasion of the city. There are razor umbrellas that shoot um, swords out of them. There's a cool kung fu action. Um, and there's a Trojan bridge. 
yeah, there's a Trojan bri uh, bridge, floating bridge. Um, and the entire thing, to me, is, like, the underlying premise is suffused with a very non-Western sort of philosophical idea where it's, like, in order to defeat the, the big strong enemy who uses yang and, and fire, we're going to use yin and water and feminine uh, energy to defeat them. So that, like, you know, it, it's a trope, but it's a non-Western trope. Um, I actually saw this movie back in October uh, at a film fest in the theater, so that was also kind of great to see it on a big screen then. Um, yeah, what did you guys think of it? I enjoyed it. I... It was very interesting to keep in mind that this director had done um, Hero and House of Flying Daggers, which are both movies where color is so important. Mm -hmm. um, and to to just appreciate the fact that it's still very important in this movie, but it is such a different palette that he is working in. Yeah. Well, and the black and white color scheme sort of goes at the at the idea of the shadow. Um, character and goes at the idea of like the yin and the yang concept as well um oh yeah this yeah. movie has a thesis and it wants you to know what it is <laughs> yes yes <laughs> plus they play a lot with the 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 weather you know that it's raining throughout half the film and so that also lends itself well to the color palette where you occasionally get little splotches of color especially with with the blood mm -hmm. um but for the most part yeah it's it it feels like it's in black and white but you still can tell that it's just the way that it was shot that it's like you said that the palette that's chosen was a very washed out gray kind of uh, color scheme mm -hmm. yeah i saw a, i saw a quote um from an article about this movie that said it was meant to uh evoke a chinese ink wash painting mm. um... i can see that with the costumes so many of like their their costumes looked like that yeah, so in addition to the black and white uh, yin and yang motif, it was also supposed to evoke this very um, elegant and uh, specific art style, which I thought was really cool. One of the things that I, I, I found interesting about this, because, you know, I was kind of watching it with uh, critical eyes, not, not an, that I was looking for something to find negative about it, but just, uh, you know, trying to pick up on what was different about it or what kind of made it a a Chinese film versus, you know, an American one. And one of the things that initially jumped out at me is that, you know, you've got this entire world that's being built that, you know, as, an, as me, I don't know anything about. Maybe it's something that they do. I don't know. But it's all kind of told through exposition of the characters. There's no, like, scroll at the beginning. Well, not, no big scroll at the beginning with a lot of information shoved into it. Hmm. There is some... I believe, if I remember right, there was some uh, just real brief kind of here's what's about to happen, and then the rest of it just kind of goes, and you learn about it as you go. And it the whole movie felt unlike any you know film that I've seen here recently, um, which was it was very refreshing actually. Mm -hmm. There was a whole like that first half hour is pretty solidly a this is who I am in relation to you. And this is who you are in relation to me. It was yep. a lot of. And war um, with them and they don't like us for this reason. Yeah. Which I, I think was necessary. And I, I would rather have had that than like some huge opening crawl. 
But it did make the first, I, I was checking my watch a lot during that first half hour. Yeah. Like, are we still doing this? Well, and, you know, in, in that sense, American movies are going to, like, especially action movies like, or, you know, supposed action movies like this will start with a, an action set piece. Like, the first, within the first 15 minutes, you have to have something happen. Um, otherwise, audiences will leave. So, like, this movie, it's all back-ended with action. The front end is, like, you know, for the first... 30 minutes, as you said, I think all that happens is that they don't play a zither duet. Um. <laughs> well, I feel you... like... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I feel like if this had been directed by an American filmmaker, the opening scene would have been the fall of the city. Yeah. Like, we would have opened with that, um, that losing battle, and then... An, the the rest of the story is then recovering from that. Mm -hmm. Or the uh, Whereas, the actual commander being wounded. Um, yeah. In, yeah. Instead of him being the entire movie being the sort of like deranged version of himself who is wasting away and living in a cave. What's an interesting counterpoint to this is that um, you're, you're talking about kind of how an American director might come at a not not necessarily a similar story, but um, a similar type film, not being a period piece necessarily, but within, I'd say, a week maybe or so of seeing this, I saw, this is going to sound terrible, but I saw Michael Bay's Six Underground, <laughs> which opens up with a, a bungled uh, job. Everybody's, you know, driving fast cars through the middle of downtown Italy. There's explosions all over the place. People are getting murdered. Uh, you know, and during the course of it, you know, there's these big splashes of this is this character, this is their backstory, this is this character, this is their backstory. You know, let's introduce everybody. And then once that first 15 minutes of just completely in your face Michael Bay explosiveness, then we start the story. And that is more of an American style storytelling to a an action movie or even a movie that is a, a drama, but that has action set pieces in it very different yeah sorry that's an extreme example but it's the first <laughs> thing that popped into mind when you were describing what you were describing i'm like that's exactly what happened in six underground <laughs> <sighs> um so joel you made a point about this movie before we started reporting that i think is interesting and that i agreed with in that um you said that you did not think this movie was likely to get an american adaptation um and I agree, uh, but I'm interested to kind of hear you uh, hear why you um, why you said that. Just as I was watching it, it, it kind of I think if they tried to do it, it would end up being like Shall We Dance, where there's a lot of things in here that I think that are culturally kind of pointed at Chinese culture and you know the the legends, the storytelling, whatever of that culture. Whereas here, if you tried to redo it, it just, for in my mind, it just it wouldn't work. Like, the, the pacing, the storytelling, the kind of... It's a very, actually, very simplistic story, which some people can carry off that, you know? Like a Jim Jarmusch or something, where, you know, you, you've got this kind of real, just molasses pace, um, where there's not a lot that really happens, but in the reality, there is a, a huge amount of things that are going on. But they're not focusing on the bigger outside story. They're focusing on this little tiny 
microcosm of uh, almost like political intrigue that then ends up in a somewhat badass, you know, fight between people with uh, umbrellas riding down the middle of a street and, uh, <laughs> you know, guys with, with bows and arrows. Um, and outside of like a, a Wachowski Brothers kind of set piece, you keep using that word, um, <laughs> I can't see, I just can't see it being something that would work here without some major kind of rewriting of the entire script. Yeah, a lot of the characters feel <clears throat> almost over the top or completely underdeveloped. Like, yeah, the, the Shadow is almost a cipher for the entire movie. Like, he does not have... There are moments where he has emotions, but he is not, like, a super developed character. And that's sort of the case of all... He's maybe the most developed of all of them. Um, none of them are incredibly sympathetic in the way that, like, a Western movie would make sure that it's... Its heroes and its villains are clearly demarcated. Yes. Um, whereas here it's like, I don't know, I kind of was on, like, I didn't have, you know, animosity to um, Yang Kang, the, the the rival, you know, villain guy that he has to beat in the duel. He was just sort of like, he was a, an opponent without being an enemy. Um, and then half of the, you know, the, the king and the actual commander and all these other people, they're all psychologically interesting characters, but they're not like, clearly sympathetic heroes or hateable villains, um, which I appreciated, but also would make it hard to translate here, like in, in turn it into an American-style blockbuster. And that's a really good point that I hadn't even picked up on, but you're right now that I think about it. Absolutely. So something that I think is really interesting about this director, he made a movie called... A Woman, a Gun, and a Noodle Shop mm. that is a Chinese remake of the Coen Brothers movie Blood Simple. Oh. Uh, oh, you piqued my interest. <laughs> I mean, that title oh, alone and then right. everything else you said. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bummed we didn't think about this topic as going the other way. Yeah. Um, I well, call it if we're going to do that show, I'd like to join you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think of the Coens as someone who's very, who feels like they'd be challenging to adapt to a different cultural context. I agree. And that's why I'm very curious. I, that is not a, um, that's not a Coen Brothers movie that I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I agree with you, Pete. I think they, their aesthetic just feels very American to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I would be super curious to see, uh, particularly this director who has such a distinct visual language. Yeah. Um, well, and Blood Simple is the Coen brothers. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's their first film is very different from the Coen brothers now. Like, night and day different um there's still elements of that storytelling and that 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 style but they've it's it's two totally different animals so I, that makes me all the more curious yeah, and and you're right that it is their first movie that's what i thought yeah it's very slow it's very uh not a lot happens and and it's you you get hints and and little tidbits of what was to come, mm -hmm. but it's it's an entirely 
it's 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 a whole different thing. Hmm. Well, is there any um any sort of overarching thing we want to talk about? I feel like we've sort of been working in our various um you know, discussion questions, things we want to talk about with each of these uh, individually, but is there any sort of large-scale idea anyone wants to bring up before we wrap up this episode? Yeah, I think in general, um, for me at least, remakes or adaptations work better when you don't um, try to just copy something beat for beat. Like, when you take the time, when when a filmmaker takes the time to think about, like, what is it about this story that I find compelling enough to want to retell mm-hmm. um, rather than just saying, I am going to redo this thing. Like what I I want to be able to watch a movie and kind of say, okay, what is it about this story that was compelling or important to the filmmaker? Um, and then what are they doing with it? That's new. Um well, and similar there also, like, understanding what is and isn't, like, what will need to change to fit a different cultural context. Um, think, like, let the right one in didn't need to change a whole lot. Shall we dance? Should have changed um, a lot more than it did, you know? Yeah, or I'm trying to never think... been made. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. I'm trying to think of what the activity that Richard Gere could engage in that I would have bought as being more, um, like what, what American analog to ballroom dancing could he have engaged in that I would have been like, Oh, I understand why this is your secret life. Well, it'd be like a film convention, but then you don't really have the ballroom (laughs) dancing aspect. I think what, what would have been the simplest fix with the story they already had was to play up the, the interest in, jennifer lopez's character a bit more make that a bit more of a point of contention with him like i have i'm interested in this person but i'm married and you know i'm gonna keep taking this class because i want to be close to her but then over the course of it i'm less interested in her and i'm more interested in dancing realizing that it's not the relationship that i'm after it's the change of routine that i've fallen into that's made me kind of complacent and sad but they really they tone it down heavily and it's it's like okay we're moving on you know yeah. they should do out more on that it, it, that's a simple fix um but real quick about what you're talking about with changing something or, or the reason behind a remake like why are you doing it one of the worst offenders of of point for point remakes is gus van zandt psycho where yes he literally made a shot for shot remake and when i saw it i was like okay so what's the point of this yeah. This is also this is also why I do not truck with any of the Disney live action remakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they would have let Vince Vaughn be and uh, be uh, you know um, Norman Bates, and they would have let him kind of play in that sandbox, but twisted some other things around like they did in in the Bates Motel series, it would have it maybe would have been something really interesting. But instead, it just turned out to be a literal shot for shot remake that made me go good. Lord Almighty, you know, why do we need this? Why does this exist? You, you certainly know how to look at a movie, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. And we all know that it exists because, you know, the money, so. Although I don't think that movie made a lot <laughs> no, of money. No, it did not because, no. because of exactly what we're talking about here. It wasn't good. Nope. 
All right. Well, oh, I a lot of bad movies make money. <laughs> Sorry, sure. I'm just being argumentative now. Take us out. Pete. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyone? Any other final thoughts before we wrap up? Sounds good. Um, I think it is just one real fast one. Yeah. I think it's cool that we basically decided we were all going to watch five movies this week and only one of them is bad. Yeah. yeah. That's a good ratio. Yeah. And and it was it's intentionally better... picked for being bad. Yeah. It's a better ratio than our homework stuff sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, no, that's not fair. Um, we well, all agreed. One of them was bad. Yeah. There was only one we didn't like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put it like that. Well, and also that we all agreed on sort of all of them. You know, like how, how, how we yeah. felt about all of them. Yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, well, that's going to be it for the show this week. Joel, thanks so much for being on it. Well, thanks for having me. I always have a good time. I'm, I am looking forward to our reverse remake episode. <laughs> yeah, actually that does sound yes. really interesting. <laughs> we'll, um, figure, we'll figure it out and get back to you. Yeah. Uh, Joel, what do you want to plug? Social media, other podcasts you're on. Take it away. Um, well, I, I, I'm a regular podcaster on my own. I've got two shows um, currently. One is the Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, which is kind of sporadic lately, but there are still episodes coming out. That's my six-song musical mix cast where I talk about things that kind of are going on in my life and uh, you know, kind of motivational sorts of introspections along with six songs that I... Um, you know, specifically kind of curate for that episode. And then the other show I do is 40 Going on 14. That's a weekly nostalgia cast with uh, my friends, Mike, Pat, and Josh, who we sit around and talk about things from pre-2000 and post-2000, whether it be movies, TV shows, our own personal lives, whatever, and kind of what it's like um, looking at things then versus now. Um, and you can find all those shows on all your podcasting directories. If you're just put it in a search, it'll come up guaranteed. Cool. I guessed it on 40 going on 14, a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> was that a September episode? We haven't done that in a while. It was, I believe Pat was out for a while. Oh, um, yep. but yeah, I came on to talk about female comic book creators. I remember that. It was very exciting to me that you guys let me talk about something that I am passionate about for like two hours <laughs> and didn't tell me to stop. <laughs> but we like that passion and that's a good thing, you know? Yeah, it was, so. it was super fun. Cool. Um, uh, well, yeah, you can find our podcast also anywhere fine podcasts are found. Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, etc. Um, we're on the web at Twitter at DYDYH podcast. We're on Facebook by just searching for Did You Do Your Homework? Uh, and you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm tweeting about politics and pop culture. Uh, Martha, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me at all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, you can also read my newsletter, which I uh, put out whenever I feel like it. Uh, you can <laughs> find that at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Um, you can also listen to the other podcasts that I do on this same feed. We release on Opposing Wednesdays from Did You Do Your Homework. Uh, that one is called Love Ya and is me and my friend and sometimes guest on the show, Marin, 
dissecting teen rom-coms that we watch on various streaming platforms. So next episode, we're going to be, uh, it's going to come out right after the Oscars. So we are going to be talking about the Oscars. Your homework is to watch or at least know what the winner, know who the winners of the Oscars are. Um, and until then, uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Class dismissed.